are week three in our series, Revive Us Again. Uh, it's really week five, but I'm going to forget about those other two weeks where we didn't actually do the teaching. So I'm just going to say week three, okay? So for those of you who are neat nicks and counters, I know it's week five, but we're just going to say it's week three. And it, this is, I've been saying this, uh, this is really a series where like we're building from one week to the next. And so you know, I just think it for a number of reasons, it's important to be in the Sunday gathering. But in this season in particular, uh, as we're talking about the things we're talking about, just want to encourage you to try and be here every week. We do podcasts. Uh, you can go on our new website, westfieldchurch.com, and get the sermons there or on iTunes or Google Play or however you all do all that stuff. But I want to just quickly set up where we have been because it's going to, in every way, connect to what we are going to say this morning. So we've been kind of pitching this uh, vision for what it means to be the people of God. This isn't new for us. If you've been around West Village for any length of time, we use this language all the time. We repeat it all the time. We talk about it all the time because we think it's really important. But we've been saying that God's heart for his church is to uh, saturate the city, saturate the world. And so we, we call this gospel saturation. So there'll be a definition up on the screen of gospel saturation that my prayer and hope is that this just gets like so redundant that I don't have to say it every week because it'll be not just in your mind, but on your heart. And this is the definition of gospel saturation, that every day, every man, woman, and child would have a daily encounter with Jesus and his church through word and deed. That fires us up. That's why we're sad but excited to send Carolyn out. That's why we're excited when we hear about what God's doing in your life, in your workplace, in your school, in your living room, because we get excited about what God's doing in our city. This is Jesus's heart. When we started West Village, day one, we didn't have all this gospel language and we didn't just add the word gospel to everything that we said like we do now. But back then we used to say, uh, when it was 20 of us in a living room, we would say, we don't want to try and figure out how to get people to go to church. We want to try and figure out how to get the church to go to people. That's gospel saturation. How do we be a going, ascending, a missional people? The Bible talks about this a lot, but in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, which is the verse that we often come back to when we're talking about gospel saturation, it says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That this is God's heart for his people, his church, for you. If you are filled with his spirit, this is what his desire is for you. It's not that you would come here, sit in a comfy seat, listen to an exceptionally handsome man preach uh, really funny and good sermons to you. Eat a scone, drink. You didn't laugh. No, no, nothing. Adam's like, eh, eh. Uh, eat a scone, drink a coffee, uh, you know, like, and just enjoy some wonderful music. Like, I mean, that was great. You guys killed it. But that's not, his heart isn't that this would just be like this consumer fest, right? Where you just enjoy the, the, the goodness of coming to a church gathering. But the hope is that this would be a time where we'd be filled, equipped, so that we could be sent out to fill the city. Fill it. That's what we want to do. We want to send out as many missionaries as possible. I was joking about this this weekend when I was talking to someone. Someone asked, how many staff do you have at West Village? couple hundred. We are all on full-time staff at West Village Church. You might not have known that. If you're new, we'll, uh, you know, if this is your first Sunday, we'll give you the, you know, the handbook, the HR handbook and policies and vacation, all that stuff, how it works around here. But no, I'm, I'm kidding. But here, here's how this works. Every single one of us is a full-time missionary. And God just routes your paycheck through various means. And so his heart is that we would all go out and be missionaries. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's who you are. That's what it's about. That's the mission of the church. That isn't our idea. That isn't something we made up. That's God's story for his people from beginning to end. That's just what it is. If you're going to a church and that's not their heart, then you're like, that's not what Jesus wants for his people. That's what he wants, that he would fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. We are the church and we live out that mission. So we've been going through this chart. If you want to throw that up for me, Ian. 
or this, this image here that just kind of gives us a sense of how the Spirit of God does this. Because sometimes what can happen is we talk about gospel saturation, we get really excited, and then we go home and we eat a sandwich, take a nap, fall asleep watching Netflix. And then it just kind of dies on the couch. So how does the Spirit of God actually produce gospel saturation? If you see, if you look at the end of this, you see that gospel saturation is actually a cultural thing. It's something that happens in our culture. It it, it spills out of the church. And so there's this reality to which the gospel has to first, before it can uh, transform a culture, it has to transform the church. Martin Lloyd-Jones is famous for saying that before revival can happen in a city, the people of God must be revived. But here's the thing, here's the reality, is that the church is us. Like, the church is people, it's us, it's you, it's me. So before it can happen to the church, it has to happen to you. It has to happen to me. It's not enough for me to get really excited about an idea and a sermon. It's not enough for the elders to get excited about an idea or a sermon series and whoop everyone up into a frenzy and then just put it on the shelf and forget about it. There has to actually be real-time change and transformation in your life. It has to happen. There is no other way. I mean, God will do what God will do. Absolutely, I fully believe that. But consistently throughout history, throughout the scriptures, he chooses the church, his people. The apostle Paul calls it his body of which he is the head to fulfill his mission. Why, I don't know. It seems like a bad idea, doesn't it? But that's what he's doing. Which means we, you, individually, have to get serious about gospel saturation in your own life. The gospel will not saturate our church if it first does not saturate you, and it will not saturate our culture if it does not saturate our church. And so you, as an individual, have to start asking very hard, real, honest, raw questions. Do I even want that? Or do I really like the muffin or the scone and the coffee and the good band? And that's what I've signed up for. So we have taken this thing back down to ground zero. Last week we said this. We said that we need to pay attention to what we pay attention to. In order to have, to even be able to have an encounter with God that will transform us, we must pay attention to what we pay attention to because what we pay attention to is what we adore. It is what we worship. It will form us. It will shape us. And, you know, some of you, like, probably through your cell phones, like, in a deep, deep, dark pit. That was not an anti-cell phone sermon uh, intentionally. Uh, But there are some realities. And so this was the take-home, the homework last week was to take 10, 10 minutes at the end of each of your day and ask the Spirit, what did I pay attention to today? I hope you did that. I hope you did that. I hope you keep doing that. It's so important. I did that. It was very good for me. I, I just started, just personally have started instituting a 12-hour, a daily 12-hour fast from my cell phone. So every day at 8 p.m., I just put my phone on airplane mode. I put it away and I pick it up the next morning after I've started my day and I'm, I'm out the door at the office. 12 hours just to disconnect from that because it draws me in, it sucks me in, and it takes my life and my soul. But what are you paying attention to? Because that is what you will ultimately worship. And so I promised you last week that we would start to answer the question, how do we pay attention to Jesus? And that's what we're going to go after this morning. So we're going to answer 
kind of one or two questions this morning. It's really going to be basic. This is going to be more like a laboratory classroom environment than a sermon. And the question we're going to answer is, what is prayer and how do we do it? You should have received on your way in uh, one of these uh, kind of bookmarky card things. If you didn't, there's some here on the table here. Uh, there is some out in the lobby at the Connect desk, uh, but we're going to go through those towards the end of the gathering. But if you have a Bible, open it up, go to Philippians chapter 4. As John said, there's Bibles on the table you can download on your phone, ironically enough, the Bible. And we're going to kind of hang our thoughts on Philippians chapter 4. We're actually not going to teach much from these verses, but they're going to kind of just set the backdrop for us. So Philippians chapter 4, picking up in verse 6, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So let's just talk about prayer for a few moments. Uh, You saw this in the quote video prior to me preaching, but in Luke chapter 11, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, a question. They say, Lord, teach us to pray, or how do we pray? And this is, interestingly enough, the most or the, the most frequently asked question of Jesus by his disciples. And it's a good question. It's a really good question. It's probably one that we need to answer more often than not. And the reality that I think all of us face, if you're new to church, if you got dragged here with a friend or your mom or your grandma or whatever the case may be, There is an inherent reality that prayer is in every way central to the human experience. We we might not use the word prayer, we might not call it prayer, but this idea of connection to a transcendent is definitely a reality that every single person has an experience with. A recent Gallup poll indicated that 9 out of 10 people pray regularly and 3 quarters of people pray daily. I, I don't know if you felt this or noticed this just as you do life uh, with people in and out of the church, but meditation and medita- uh, meditative practices are on the rise. Uh, even amongst, I have a, a lot of friends who would literally, like, they're not just like not churchgoers, they're not just SBNR spiritual, but not religious. They're actually like atheists. There is no God. The physical world is all that exists. Even those people are leaning into meditative practices. They're seeing the value and the benefit of it. A best-selling book recently by uh, by uh, Sam Harris, who ha- takes a militant stand against religion and God. He's, his book is titled uh, Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. I've read the book. I uh, dialogued with my friend on it. And in every way, he's saying meditative practices, connection to something outside of yourself, even though he only believes in the physical universe, that there's nothing beyond the physical universe, that there's something powerful when the mind can go to this place of meditation. Yoga, meditation classes, mindfulness master classes, apps on your phone that help you meditate, that give you resources to be able to meditate. These are all very, very popular, and they are a part of the current cultural milieu that we find ourselves in. And it seems to me, I mean, I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but it seems to me that there's like a rebound from this pendulum swing. There's been this pendulum swing post-enlightenment where we, we used to think, we used to kind of, the dominant worldview was that the physical universe is all that there is. And so there was kind of this Nietzsche, God is dead reality. There's no use for anything outside of the scientific method, that that is all we need to discern reality and to take care 
of ourselves, but there seems to be this, as there often is within culture, a pendulum swing back. For every mile of road, there's two miles of ditches. And so we're starting to pull ourselves up out of the ditch of the enlightenment and back onto the road and recognizing that there is more to the human person than just body. But the, that we are body, some would say body and mind, and some would even go so far as to say body and mind or body and soul. But as we've been saying over and over and over again, if we are brutally honest when it comes to prayer, and statistics bear this out, I won't go down that road this morning, but we suck at it. We suck at it. We don't know how to do it. We struggle. We wrestle. To use Paul's language in Ephesians 4, there's an anxiety around it. The thought of being alone in a room, talking to a God is for some terrifying, for others boring, and probably for most, if you're anything like me, it's terribly difficult. Terribly difficult. And so here's my contention, that for us to be transformed, for us to have an encounter and an experience with God that will change us and transform us, we have to get brutally honest. And we have to come to terms with what is happening inside of us when we pray. Let me explain this by way of illustration. My lovely wife is sitting right here. She is often a sermon illustration, and she will again be a sermon illustration, although this time with me. We got married 16 years ago. and When we first got married, it was like most marriages, blissful and wonderful, right? I mean, there was some stuff, you know, like you're like that thing you thought was cute when you were dating. Now you like experience it every day. It's actually kind of annoying. But for the most part, you're kind of in this newlywed uh, honeymoon phase where things are generally good. And I don't know about every marriage, but, but I think this is probably the case for just about every marriage. You get to this place where the honeymoon, honeymoon air quotes, kind of wears off. And you start to realize that, and there's some, like, things are good. Like, they're good. I chose well, right? I did. She's a great lady. But, but there's some things about me that she doesn't really know. Like, I've, I've kind of been holding on to them. I kind of, I, you know, like, yeah, we're married, and she probably knows me better than anyone knows me, but there's, like, a limit to how far I'm going to let her actually truly know me. And if I'm honest and I look at her, I'm like, there's some things about her that we need to have a chat about. And my suspicion is she probably, I know, looking back, feels the same way. There's some baggage in her past that she hasn't dealt with. There's some stuff buried deep that she hasn't dealt with. And there's some things about me that she's going, man, we need to have a chat. And we kind of came to this point where we had a choice. Were we going to be excellent roommates? Or were we going to dig deep? And, And I would say we're probably about a year and a half or two years past a fairly lengthy stretch in our marriage where we chose to dig deep. 
We pressed in. We got really raw. We got really honest with one another. I mean, we're talking tears, snot face crying, counseling, hugging, repenting, praying together, putting it all out on the table. And now, by God's grace, we are in a place, I don't even know how to qualify it other than to say it feels a lot like Genesis 1 and 2. There is definitely not a perfection to our marriage, to be sure. But there's this sense in which we know each other in ways that are unfathomable, and yet we still decide to love one another. I feel like That is a great analogy for our relationship with God. We have to ask ourselves, are we content to be excellent roommates with him? Or do we want something more? I've come to faith in Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm enjoying forgiveness of sin. I'm anticipating a day in heaven with him. You know, for some of us, we're we're in this place where it's still newlywed. I love coming to church. I love serving. I love all that it can offer me, but it kind of stops there. And I'm not really going to press any further. If you want to put that chart back up on the screen for me, Ian, that we started with, we we said a couple of weeks ago that for, for many of us, we get to this place of regeneration where we come to faith in Jesus, where the spirit of God gives us Uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. We respond to the gospel. We come to faith in Jesus. It's good. It's lovely. It's amazing. But we stay there. We don't move to restoration. Restoration is the stage whereby the Spirit starts to actually heal us, where the brokenness in our lives actually starts to get healed and restored, where where our daddy issues get resolved, where the unforgiveness in our life gets unresolved, where the sins of our past, we start to quote-unquote leave them. It's not even quote-unquote though, because it's actually true, at the foot of the cross, where we start to learn how to forgive ourselves, where we start to learn how to forgive others. We, we have a choice if we will allow the Spirit of God to work in our lives in such a way that he would actually do that. But for many of us, we don't want it. We're content to be excellent roommates with God. That's the ceiling for some of us. There is not a sermon I can preach or a book you can read that will move you past that place unless you start to get real and raw and honest about where you're at. So where are you at? What's going on in your heart? Is this a game? Is this a thing you show up to twice a month when it works for you? Or is it something more? This is between you and God. And I can't, unfortunately, answer that question for you. So what I want to do is answer or tackle, I guess, what I think are three of the most significant tensions. We're going to hit these quick, and then we're going to move on to how do we actually pray. Three 
significant tensions, or to use the Apostle Paul's language in Philippians 4, anxieties that we experience or face when it comes to prayer. So the first one is this. The first tension is what I'm going to call outcome anxiety. In other words, why bother prayer doesn't work versus the tension, the other end of the tension, which is the work of prayer is knowing God and knowing ourselves. And Ian, if you could just leave those up while I'm teaching through this, that would be helpful. I think many of us, if we're honest, when it comes to prayer, here's kind of how we think about it. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, right? Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I had a mom, she was sick, I prayed, she died, prayer doesn't work. I've, I've had problems in my life, I've prayed, they didn't get resolved, prayer doesn't work. I have a friend who was sick, I prayed, and God didn't do what God promised he would do or what I thought God should have done. Therefore, I'm in this place where I feel like prayer doesn't work. In fact, it goes one step further where I would contend that for many of us, prayer isn't even the first place we go when we have issues. We go to our therapist, we go to our uh, community group, we go to our DNA group, and prayer is probably for some of us the last place to go. And in extreme cases, we even have those who are secular atheists who have like started a small field of study where they where they study what prayer is and they, they would say, and this is actually out there if you do a little bit of research, they would say that people who are in the hospital who receive prayer, they know that their church is praying for them, it actually makes their condition worse, not better. Because the pressure or the, the anxiety or the anguish of the weight of knowing all these people are praying for you and you got to get better to prove God somehow actually makes you worse. Here's what I would say about that. That if that is your view of prayer, you don't understand it. We don't actually understand what prayer is, but for many of us, that's been our experience and it leaves us feeling a sense of disillusionment. And when you hear about waking up early to have an encounter with God, the first thing you think of is what difference this is this going to make in my life? I got bills to pay, I got mouths to feed, I'm busy. Is this going to change anything? But we have to come to terms with the fact that prayer isn't about having a particular outcome. See, God is not like a celestial pinata. You beat him with a stick, he spits out candy. It's not like Amazon Prime, right? Two clicks and it shows up at your door three days later. If you have an outcome-oriented view of prayer, your view of prayer actually falls short of what God's intention is for the prayer relationship. Tim Keller wrote a great book on prayer, and he admits that settling on a definition of prayer is difficult, but he boils the essence of prayer down into two specific purposes. The first one is this, to truly know God. And the second is to truly know yourself. Keller in his book contends that the goal of prayer isn't to get somewhere. But that prayer is actually about a state of being. To pray is to actually be with Jesus. That's the goal of prayer. I mean, just imagine for a second having coffee with a friend, and you went out for coffee with your friend, and the goal of coffee with your friend wasn't to just be with them, but it was because you had a particular outcome. I wanted to get somewhere. I I needed something from them, right? It's going to make coffee with a friend pretty not awesome because most people don't have a whole lot to offer and they're not going to show up and just give you whatever you want. And so it's going to leave you in a place of disillusionment. But really what prayer is about is about being with Jesus. 
So Richard Foster, in his book entitled Prayer, says this, the desert mother, mothers and fathers spoke of the sin of spiritual greed. What? I've never heard that until I read this. This is great, eh? The sin of spiritual greed. How many of us have that when we come to prayer? I will pray as long as I have a particular outcome or experience, right? This better not be boring. You better not be talking about something boring, Chris, because if you're talking, I'm going to do what you said, but if it is boring, I'm not doing it more than once, right? It's going to be boring, especially if you do it in the morning. The desert mothers and fathers spoke of the sin of spiritual greed. That is wanting more of God than can properly be digested. If prayer is not a fixed habit with you, instead of starting with 12 hours of prayer-filled dialogue, single out a few moments and put all your energy into them. I would suggest that in the beginning, it is wise to strive for uneventful prayer experiences. Okay? If, you, if you're serious about praying, if you're currently not praying and you're serious about getting, uh, you know, developing a life of prayer, then I would suggest that in the beginning, it's probably wise for you to strive for uneventful prayer experiences. Like, this sucks. Just lie to me. Tell me it's going to be awesome. Divine revelations and ecstasies can overwhelm us and distract us from the real work of prayer. So here's my advice to you. Relax. Relax. And make the goal of your prayer time just having a coffee with Jesus. Just being with him. That's the first tension. The second tension is this. It's what I'm calling motive anxiety. I'm too unworthy to pray. Versus prayer is our ongoing way to continually know God and to truly know ourselves. So motive anxiety. I don't know if you ever have these feelings, but you sit down to pray and you have these feelings of unworthiness. Unworthiness can take multiple forms. The first is spiritual unworthiness. We just have this sense, this awareness of our, our sinfulness and our our unworthiness as we enter into the presence of God. I'm unholy. God is so holy. Like, who is he that he is mindful of me? Interestingly enough, that's a quote directly from the Psalms where God then speaks over the psalmist's life and tells him that God does love him. So the first type of unworthiness we have is spiritual unworthiness. The second kind is what I would call experience unworthiness. And I would imagine in this room, there's a high degree of that. We have a lot of people here who've met Jesus. We have a lot of people here who are new to church. We're trying to figure this thing out. And you sit down to pray and it's like, I don't know what to say. I've never done this before and I feel like a fool. Right? Or you're in community group and you're with people who are praying and they're using, dear God, oh Lord, hallowed be thy King James English. Why are they talking like it's the 16th century? I don't know. And they're talking about locusts killing and destroying. This is weird. What are they talking about? And then you're I'm not going to pray because I was just going to like mutter something out and I don't want to even be compared to them. And this unworthiness can set in this experience unworthiness where we feel like we we have nothing to bring to the table. Well, there's a deep irony here with this tension because the very thing that we need to overcome our unworthiness anxiety is prayer itself. Because prayer, as we've already said, does two things. The first one is it reveals who God truly is. It reveals that he's loving, gracious, and kind. And yes, you actually are unworthy, but in his kindness, he stoops down and bends down and meets with you. But it also reveals who you really are that you really are broken, you really are unworthy, but you are loved and accepted by our Heavenly Father despite that. 
So by not praying because you feel unworthy, it actually drives you further down the rabbit hole of unworthiness. And the remedy to overcome that feeling of unworthiness is actually to come to God in prayer. That's the way of renewal. That's the way of overcoming our feelings of inadequacies. And I'll just say this about experience unworthiness. I tell my kids this all the time. There are no shortcuts. There's none. This is what Malcolm Gladwell calls the 10,000-hour rule. You want to be good at something? Do it. How do you get better at praying? Praying. But I don't know how to pray. Well, start. But I don't know what to say. Say something. This message is entitled, Pray What You Got, which means just pray what you got. But I'm angry at God. Tell him. Just pray what you got. But I can only pray for two minutes. Pray for two minutes. Don't pray for 12. But I can only pray for one minute. Pray for one minute. But I feel like I need to cry. Then cry. The only way to get better at praying is to actually pray. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this great quote in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually an illustration that he's citing. And I'll read it. It's lengthy, but it's good. He says, an illustration once used by Dr. A.B. Simpson gave me great help when I first read it. And it continues to do so in connection, in this connection. He said that so many of us tend to think of God as our heavenly, as, as our Father, who gives us the great gift of grace in one lump sum. And that, having received it, we just go on living in it. But, he said, it is not like that. For that would be very dangerous for us. If God just gave us all his glorious gifts of grace in one lump sum, we would be in danger of enjoying the gift and forgetting all about God. For though we cannot understand it, God wants us as our Father. He likes us to speak to him. Just sit with that for a second. He's like an earthly father in that respect. The earthly father is grievously wounded by the son who is content to enjoy the gift the father has given him, but who never seeks his company again until he's exhausted his supplies and needs some more. Now, the father loves the child to come and speak to him. And this is God's way of doing it. It is, says Dr. Simpson, exactly as though a father put a great deposit for his son in the bank, and the son can only receive a supply each time by coming to him for a check. Each time he needs another installment, he has to come again. And that is how God deals with us. He does not come. He does not give it to us all at once. He gives it to us in installments. God is there in grace, offering his guarantee, and all we have to do is come to him. That is prayer. That's the kindness of God. That we're not hindered by our unworthiness, but we're actually motivated by it. Somebody should tweet that. We're not hindered by our unworthiness. It doesn't drive us away from God, but our unworthiness gets us to this place where we realize, where else can I go? but to God. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that worldly sorrow leads to death. I'm so unworthy, I have nowhere to go. Woe is me, but godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance means to see Jesus as better. So your unworthy feeling should actually drive you to dependence on Jesus, recognizing you need him. The third tension is this. So I'm calling it God anxiety. God's not good enough. 
and prayer reveals the Father heart of God. Okay. We need to get honest. We need to get raw. We need to get real. How do you view God? Like if you were to close your mind and think about him right now, what would the picture that comes in your mind be? What would his countenance be towards you? What would the words be coming out of his mouth over your life? How does he feel about you? Is he disappointed? Is he delighted? Is he frustrated? Is he an angry father? Is he a loving father? How do you view him? Because your view of God in every way impacts if and how and why you pray. There's an inextricable connection between the two things. How can I pray to a God who has allowed so much evil and suffering to happen in the world? How can I pray to a God who's allowed so much evil and suffering to happen to me? God, he, he's so distant and impersonal. He's like an absentee landlord, right? He only shows up when he needs the rent. I have questions. I'm confused. I don't know the answers. That's going to impact the way that you pray. In fact, I would submit to us that your view of God more than anything else will impact how you pray. So how do you view God? Be honest with him and with yourself. And listen, just in case I don't say this, because I want to say this, and I don't think it's in my notes, there is room in the, the weight of the glory of God for whatever you have. Like go through the, the Psalms and just, and just read the Psalms. You've got anger, you've got lament, you've got frustration, you've got joy, you've got delight, you've got what appears to be, the, 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 appears to be mental health anguish, struggle, wrestle, questioning. There's room for all of it. This isn't like a shut up, stuff your doubts and move on. God is big enough to handle the questions that you have for him, but you have to be real. You have to be honest. In Luke chapter 11, after Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus says this, when you pray, say, Father. Jesus refers to God as Father. The Greek word here is the word Abba. It can be translated Daddy. This is scandalous. This is actually the first time in any recorded religious writing where God is identified as this title. Well, what Jesus is wanting you to see is that God is good. This week I wrestled with this. I, there was some personal stuff going on in our family where I just, man, like I had anxiety, Philippians 4, anxiety. And a friend of mine texted me a picture. I'd Skyped with a buddy about another one. And he just, right after we got off the Skype call, he texted me this picture. Ian, can you throw that picture up on the screen for me? It's a beautiful picture. I love this picture. This is a picture from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And this is a, a Bible that we sell for kids out in the lobby. Highly recommend it for adults, but also for kids. And this comes out of Luke chapter 15. Story of the prodigal son. If you're on my social media, I posted this this morning. Because I was just like, I didn't have it in my notes. I was just like, oh man, this is where I'm at right now. I want to share this with our family. This is when the prodigal returns home and the father 
doesn't, he's not angry, doesn't judge. He says he was waiting for the son. Every day he waited, and when he saw him, he ran towards him, and he threw his arms around him, and he hugged him. In Luke 15, Jesus is trying to give us a picture of God's heart for his kids. Just look at that picture, guys. Just look at it. How would you pray to that God? What would you say? Isn't it beautiful? This is God's heart. This is his heart. He's given us the gift of prayer so that we could actually know him. To bring this full circle, how do we saturate our city? By knowing God. Knowing God. So where do we go from here? Here's my advice. I've already said it, but pray what you got. If you want to learn to pray, if you want to grow in this, then pray what you got. You might be sitting here, but Chris, my motives are all jacked up. Well, prayer is how you fix them. Tell God how jacked up your motives are. But my view of God is jacked up. Then tell him. As John Chapman says, pray as you can, not as you can. But I can't pray all night. Then don't pray all night. It would probably suck if you did. But I can't do intercessory prayer. Then don't do intercessory prayer. But let me ask you a question, family. How can you pray? How can you pray? I can pray for two minutes. Start there. C.S. Lewis said, we must learn to lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. That's good. That's good. We must learn to lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. See, prayer is about us being honest with God. Be honest with God about what is in your heart. Because if you only pray to him what you think he wants you to hear, then you are a Pharisee. So pray what you got. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to wind down here. Here's where I'm going to close the few minutes that I have left. I want to get super practical. Normally, this is where the band starts to play lightly. And, you know, I start to ask you all these, like, heart probing questions. And you're leaning in. And we go into a time of communion. We're going to go the complete opposite direction today. Okay? You can play if you want. It'd just be weird. But go for it. <laughs> I like it. Gets me grooving. Um, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. My wife should have asked her on Tuesday, but I decided to ask her on Saturday what she thought. And she's like, that's a lot. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. Here's your, uh, here's your big ask for the week. Okay, last week it was pay attention to what you pay attention to. Here's what it is this week. Carve out. Ready? Hold on to them little seat things or the knee of the person next to you or something. Get ready, get ready. 60 minutes of your day to encounter Jesus. Carve out 60 minutes of your day. I'll just let you know right now in my world how this goes. I do that four days a week. Okay, I don't do it seven. I do it four. Saturday, I sleep in. Sunday, I mean, if you want to count my sermon prep time. But as far as like just my personal time with Jesus, I do it Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday. 
and Friday. I think I'm still going to get into heaven. Okay. So I'm just, I'm just trying to like give you a sense of where I'm at. Tuesday morning, I take my kids to Tim Hortons before school. So I, I don't get up early enough to do it then, but that's when I do it. So I do it four days a week, 60 minutes. So we're like, that's a lot of time. Okay. So remember, I talked about this last week. My phone, it went off this morning again, the little thing, the new iOS. And it said, Chris, this week, you spent two hours and 53 minutes every day on your phone. For the record, that's 40 minutes less than I said last Sunday. Praise God. Okay, that's spiritual growth. Two hours and 53 minutes on my phone every day. I probably watch at least a show a day. Uh, that doesn't, you know, like whatever. I don't know. I, I do a lot of things for a lot of minutes every day. And I'm asking you, I know it sounds like a lot for some of you. I'm asking you 60 minutes with the God who made you and knows you and loves you. 60 minutes, like 60 at night, in the morning, take your lunch hour. I don't know when, 60. It's not a magical number, but it's a good number. I just made it up. There's no verses. I just think it's a good amount of time to allow the spirit of God to speak into your heart. 60 minutes. I don't know how you're going to do it. I'm guessing you're going to have to go to bed earlier. I'm guessing you're going to have to say no to a couple of things. And not to guilt you with the gospel, but can I please remind us that Jesus came from heaven to earth and humbled himself and became a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I think our God is worth 60 minutes. I mean, I hope that's just the beginning of encounter for you. And what we've done here Hopefully you all got one of these. Hold this up, take it out, look at it with me. Is we have crafted, because some of you are like 60 minutes, what am I going to do? Does Instagram count as praying? No, it doesn't, right? What am I going to do? Well, we wanted to get uber practical. Some of you don't need this, praise God. I've been doing this since I created it a few weeks ago and using it. And it's been super helpful to just craft how the 60 minutes can go. And so I literally want to just walk you through this, a pattern for daily prayer. We're asking you, Consider taking 10 minutes before you pray just to what we're calling evocation, to call on God. Start by taking time to think over who it is that you're going to be addressing. What has he done to give you access to himself? How do you stand related to him? And the truly breathtaking fact that his word and uh, that, that through his word and spirit, the Lord Jesus is building a friendship with you. A way to think about this is it's kind of like stretching before you work out, Okay. If you just go in and start doing heavy lifting, you're probably going to pull something. That's what this is. This is just a moment to just like soak in what you're about to do. It's a holy moment. You're an encounter. Next is meditation. Just take 15 minutes. This is basically just take 15 minutes to read the Bible. The encouragement here is to find a Bible reading plan. There's many online. And just read a chapter a day. Don't start Leviticus if you're just getting going at this thing. I'm going to go New Testament here, okay? Probably one of the Gospels. Skin laws, what the heck? Take a pen and a highlighter. And I'll just tell you what I do. I take a pen and a highlighter. I read a chapter and I just make notes in the margins. I highlight words. I circle things that are important. I write notes about what the Spirit of God is speaking to me. Because as you're reading, here's what I want you to ask yourself. Spirit, what are you saying to me? And listen, this is just a, a cool thing that I, I think it's a cool thing that I'm doing. I've had the same Bible since, uh, since I was in college, second year in college. And I've been doing my devotions in that Bible the whole time. And it's falling apart. Like I don't, like, I don't even know where parts of Genesis are. But I put notes in there and I write little ticks next to the chapters every time I do a chapter. And my hope is that this will actually be a gift that one day my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids will go, man, my, 
my dad, my grandpa, my great grandpa, he loved the Bible. He loved the Bible. And it's fun to have that in front of me. Then after that, take 10 minutes and do what we're calling word prayer, which is just praying the text, going over the text and the Spirit. Is there anything here I need to repent of? Is there anything here that I'm encouraged about? Is there anything here that I need to start implementing in my life? And just pray. This would be a great time to just pull out a journal. This is where I journal. And I just write. Write what God is saying to me. And then take 15 minutes for what we're calling free prayer. And this is just an opportunity to worship Jesus, to confess sin. You might have, this is like, if you have a list, if you're a prayer list person, this is the time to pray the things on your list. And then lastly, is just contemplation. Because we don't want prayer to be purely an exercise of the mind, but also of the heart. This is what Martin Luther says, allowing your thoughts to go for a walk with God. That's great, hey? Just allowing your thoughts to go for a walk with God. So what I do here is, this is what I did this week, going through the some of the things we're going through. And on the other side, coming out of it, I just said, man, God, you're so faithful. And I just took 10 minutes to meditate on the faithfulness of God. I, I pulled out that song that we sing here, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and I listened to it, and I just, I just enjoyed thinking about the faithfulness of God. And we want to have an encounter in that moment. We want to experience the grace of God in that moment. 60 minutes a day. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Spend 60 minutes a day with God. And and know this is coming. I know John already announced it, but we're going to start calling the church family to be together in prayer. We're having a prayer night. It's Tuesday, the 22nd or the 23rd. I can't remember. It's at the office from 6 to 8. Jill's going to be there to lead us in worship. This is is like we want to encounter the presence of God together. We want to meet with God together. What's happening in one or two, we want to start to happen in five and six and 10 and 70 and 80 and 100 and 200 and 250 and 300. And by God's grace, it would spill out of this place into our city. This is what God is doing in this season in our church and our invitation is to come on this journey with us. Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. How do we possibly do that? How do we do that? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on him. We're going to sing. It's an opportunity to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're going to give. Believe me, giving is a way to fix your eyes on Jesus. It's not about me, God. It's about you. It's not about my life. It's about yours given for me and the mission you've called me to live on. And then the culmination, the high point of our time together, we're going to come to the table. We're going to take communion together. There's going to be two stations at the front. You're going to come forward when you're ready. Don't come yet. Nobody come. Just stay. You're going to take a cracker, you're going to dip it in the wine or the juice, the cracker. It's a, it's a symbol, it's a picture of Jesus' body broken for you. It's God's way of saying, I, I know you're unworthy, but I love you. I'm going to give my life for you. You're going to dip it in the wine or the juice, which is the blood of Christ shed for you, for your sins. And 
And listen, this is your Luke 15 moment. This is your dad giving you a hug moment. You come down feeling anxious. You come down feeling unworthy. You come down feeling unclean. You come down with broken hearts and you receive the grace and mercy of God in Jesus. You literally take it in. And you encounter him. So I want to invite us to respond. Let's pray, Lord Jesus. You are worth so much more than 60 minutes. You are better than 60 minutes. You are better than the things that get in the way. And our hearts are prone to wander. And we need this moment right now to remind us, to fix us, to reorient us around you. Lord, would you become greater? Would you become better and all else fade into the background? We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said,